The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it was a big week in technology yet again. Artificial intelligence is taking a lead role in developments now, and people are talking about it. Is it good? Is it bad? How effective is it? How can we manage it? It's a lot of discussion circling around the use and application of artificial intelligence. There's also a dangerous malware program out that's emulating TikTok. That's the program that is about ready to be disabled by the U.S. government on Sunday. And somebody wants you to download a fake version of, of TikTok with the, all the malware attached. Uh, this shit week, we're going to feature the man who came up with something that we've all had to live with for many, many years. He invented the use of the password to mm. provide security for the computer. And he says the password has gotten out of control. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim and the ever-present Mr. Big Voice. Last week I enjoyed the show yet again. I've been trying to get a few of my physicist friends rounded up so you can build up your listenership to over 10 people. And, you know, Bob, uh, we're, we're looking forward to that, Bob. Yeah. That'll, that will be a milestone for us. I ran across a uh, uh, kind of an interesting thing, an article about Atwood's Duck. And this is frequently used by software developers when they're trying to get their software approved. Have you ever heard of Atwood's Duck? Well, I went and looked. I'd never really heard specifically of Atwood's duck. I, I know the technique that they're using. It's quite interesting. It's a, a it's a legend. It's a legend that is in the in the IT industry, and it goes back to a piece of corporate lore relating to Interplay Entertainment. Now, they made video games. It is well known that the producers of these games, whenever you'd give them the final edit the producer would want to just make one more change because he wants to show that he has some value added. And so the artist always knew that. So he would be working on a game. He, he was actually working on a game by the name of Battle Chess. And what he would do, down in the corner of every frame, he would put an animated duck. And, and he would do the whole animated sequence. They had a queen in this thing. So he would have the queen in there, the animated queen doing all the things. There'd always be this duck following the queen around. And then he would show it to the final producer. And then the producer would say, okay, it is perfect. Just get rid of the duck. And the producer <laughs> got rid of what he wanted to do. 
And so that became the legend of the Atwood duck. So now whenever anybody is developing software, they always add something they can throw away so the project manager can show that he's worth something. Following in the great tradition of the Atwood duck. We got an email from Hawk in Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, I just got a computer from my place of employment. Now they have two accounts on this computer. One is the administrative account and the other one is the standard account. Why are there two accounts? Isn't it just easier to use the administrative account so I can install any program I want? And what's the purpose of the standard account anyway? Hawk and Bowie. Well, Hawk, every modern version of Windows allows you to create two types of local accounts. One type's the administrative account, and that pretty much is like the root account on a Unix or Linux machine. A user logged into the administrative account can do anything to that computer. Pretty much you have control over every single program, the computer, including the operating system. Now, a standard account limits what you can run. It doesn't allow you to install new programs. It doesn't allow you to alter the operating system. You have limited ability to change what's on the computer. Now, using a standard account will prevent most malware and malicious programs and apps from making changes to your Windows operating system. So this is what happens. If you're surfing the web and you are logged into the administrative account and you go to a website that downloads malware to the to your computer using your administrative account, that malware can do anything it wants and it can take over the computer. On the other hand, if you're logged into the standard account, the malware that comes into the computer as you're surfing the web only has the rights that are allowed with the standard account. So your computer is much safer. So that you have two accounts. So when you're just normally using your computer, using the applications, not installing anything, Use the standard account. Use it especially when you're surfing the web and only use the administrative account whenever you want to make a change or install some software. Uh, it appears as though your IT department actually trusts you because they gave you an administrative account. So congratulations on that. Use your standard account properly and your IT department will still have confidence in you. Great question, Hawk. We got an email from Dan in Richmond. Dear Doc and Jim, I just retired and have some time on my hands. I'd like to blog. I love to write, but can I actually make any money blogging? How, how, how actually to make money? Dan in Richmond. Well, Dan, you really don't have to be a great writer to have an effective blog. What you need to have an effective blog and earn money is you need to have an expertise that you want to share with people and an expertise that other people could benefit from. For instance, if you've got a lot of experience in a former career field that could help younger workers just getting started in the field, you probably could get a following. So regardless of your background or life experiences might be, chances are there are thousands, perhaps millions of people on the internet who'd love to hear what you have to say because you have some unique experiences that are worth sharing. Now, there are several ways to earn money from the blog, but the one I like the best is the affiliate commission. It's for the sale of products and services that you like and recommend. An affiliate link is a special link to a sales page for a product that you're recommending via the blog. If a reader clicks on that affiliate link, you earn a commission. Linking to the sales page for a product that solves something you just wrote about is a great way to earn a commission. For example... If you're a retired chef, you could write about preparing your favorite 
recipes. And in the course of writing the post, you could mention the cookware and the utensils that you use in making the dish. Now, only recommend things that you use and you like, and your leader, your readers will enjoy. Will, or things that people will pay you to recommend. <laughs> That's right. Or they could pay you to recommend it. But, the, but you're not being paid for this. This is not like a... Uh, you know, a paid thing. It's just, you just get a commission if they do it. But, uh, and that's a great way to earn money. And now, of course, if you really get a huge following, you will get sponsors who will pay you to talk about their products, but you've got to have tens of thousands of followers before you get to that category. We got an email from Carol in Baltimore. Dear Tech Talk, we live in a duplex and our neighbor has a 14-year-old son who bought the Straight Talk phone from my daughter. The thing is, she didn't reset the phone before she sold it to him. He said he'd just like to take over the phone number, and she said that'd be fine. So the phone automatically connects to our Wi-Fi network because she didn't change the password. And I know for a fact that he uses our Wi-Fi a lot because he told my daughter he does, and his parents don't have Internet access at their place. Is there any problem with problems of him piggybacking on our wireless network? Oh, Carolyn yes. Bolton? Yeah, there could be a problem, Oh, Carol. yes. There could be a real problem. Now, potentially, if your internet service is metered, and if he streams a lot of videos, he could really kick you over the monthly cap, and that could cost you a lot. Or if he's has a high bandwidth usage, like he's downloading a lot of MP3s, and you're trying to watch a Netflix movie, the Netflix movie might sputter on and off if it runs out of bandwidth, and that interference could be a problem. But probably the most dangerous thing is if he decides to download some child pornography or does some other kind of illegal activity on the phone, the authorities are not going to go to his house. They're going to come knocking on your door instead. So I'd recommend that you change your Wi-Fi password pronto. And then I'd also have your daughter go back and see if she can make certain that all of her Photos and private information are erased from the phone, or maybe she could reset the phone, which would make a uh, which would be a a wise thing to do. She he may not let her do that, but um, she should at least try to make certain that none of her private information is still on the phone. We got an email from John in St. Louis, dear Tech Talk. The manufacturers have done it again. They've made buying a TV so complicated, I cannot figure out the jargon. What's the difference between LED and OLED, John, in St. Louis, Missouri? Well, OLED is organic light-emitting diode. It's fundamentally different from liquid crystal display technology in most flat, flat panel displays. Now, a liquid crystal display is a thin layer that actually allows different colors through, and in the back you have a light that shines through those layers and the liquid crystal display modulates that light and lets through different colors or lets through no color. Now what the manufacturers have done to make it confusing, even though it's a liquid crystal display, the lighting behind the liquid crystal display that's shining through, that is LEDs. So they call that an LED TV, but actually it's a liquid crystal TV and the modulator is a liquid crystal. On the other hand, an organic LED TV is actually an organic LED. An LED stands for light-emitting diode. So that means every picture element or pixel actually has, has a small light-emitting diode and actually has three of them, three different colors, and they actually emit light. 
And so there is no modulation of a back panel, of a backlit panel like with liquid crystal display. They're actually emitting light. So that's a fundamentally different technology. And there's also a QLED, which is a quantum dot LED. It's still an organic LED, but the dots are very small, so you get you get higher resolution. It's kind of a marketing pitch, and it's a particular processing technique. But organic LED is significant, significantly different than, than, uh, than a liquid crystal display that the manufacturers call LED. Now, here's one of the biggest differences. Organic LEDs are not that bright because uh, if they turn them up full blast, the LEDs over time degrade, so they turn them down so they have less intensity. Now, on the other hand, the organic LEDs have absolute black on them. Their, their dynamic range is extremely high, so when you turn off the pixel, nothing comes through, so it's absolutely black. So the organic LEDs will work really well if you've got a, 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 a low illumination room. If you're looking at it in the dark, you'll see a great dynamic range, and the fact that they're not that bright is not really a problem. Now, the organic LEDs also have a very wide field of view because they're just shining out light. On the other hand, liquid crystal displays, which are also called LEDs because it's an LED backlight, the liquid crystal displays are much brighter because they can really crank up that LED backlight to really high. So the LED TVs are much brighter. So if you're watching it in a very bright room, you're going to want to have an LED TV because it's got much more brightness. Now, the LED will not have the same dynamic range because they actually, when they try to turn off a pixel, still a little bit of light leaks, leaks through that liquid crystal display. So it's not perfectly black. So you don't have high dynamic range. But in a, in a, in a brightly lit room, you won't see a difference. So that's the primary difference. Now, LED TVs right now are cheaper than the organic LEDs, but their prices are coming down as we as we speak. So best of luck. So I would actually decide what kind of room you're going to be watching it in, and then just go down and look at the TVs and see which, you know, which images you like, which image quality you like. We got an email from, uh, let's see here. What did we, oh, oh, just a minute here. <laughs> I skipped, you know what Get I did? I skipped the page. Yeah, let me just see here. Here we go. Uh, here we go. Take your time. Yeah. Actually, I think I have finished have all the now? letters. I went through, I blew through those so fast because I was so excited this morning because we have such a big show oh, that we want, to, we want to get to everything. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, 104.5 FM uh, in Loudoun County, and southwest of Washington now on 107.7 FM HD 2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. Now it is time for... Yes, today we're going to feature Fernando Jose Corbato. Fernando Jose Corbato is also known as Corby to his friends. He's an American computer scientist, best known as a pioneer in time-sharing operating systems and the inventor of the password. Corbato was born July 1st, 1926 in Oakland, California. In 1930, his father was hired by UCLA to teach Spanish literature, and the family moved to L.A. Now, in 1943, Corbato enrolled in UCLA, and seven months into his first year, uh, World War II had just begun, and he was recruited by the Navy to train as an electronics technician. Now, his experience in the Navy, because he was always troubleshooting electronics before it was loaded onto a ship, it gave him a lifelong interest in tracking down errors and debugging systems. Corbato left the Navy in 1946 and he enrolled in Caltech. And he received a bachelor's degree in physics in 1950. That's why I like this guy. He got his degree in physics, but then he quickly moved to computers. While a graduate assistant at MIT, he was encouraged by Professor Philip Morris to become an expert in the use of the whirlwind computer for physics computation. They were calculating a lot of wave function, quantum mechanical wave functions. That These calculations were ultimately used in a book that was published there at MIT. So he earned a PhD in physics from MIT in 1956. His doctoral thesis was in molecular physics. And it called for a lot of huge calculations, which required the use of a major mainframe computer. Now, this work was very laborious. And in retrospect, getting the computer to work is kind of dull. But it taught him and gave him a hands-on feel on working with programs, organizing them, and learning the ropes about how computers worked. When he got his Ph.D., he was hired by MIT's Computation Center because he spent so much time there working on his dissertation. And uh, he ultimately became a, a, a full professor there at MIT in 1965. And he stayed at MIT until he retired. Now, as soon as the Computation Center hired him, he started working on a time-sharing system. 
It was the MIT Compatible Time Sharing System, CTSS. An early version of the CTSS was uh, released within MIT in 1961. Now, at the time, computing was done in large batches, and users typically had to wait till the next day to get their results. I remember when I was doing my PhD dissertation back in the early 70s, I had these cards, and I would do this. I'd punch. I'd have the cards. I would type in the computer program on a card, one line of computer code per card, typically, although you could put a continuation symbol, and you could and you could have one line span multiple cards of an extremely long programming line. And then you would carry this big stack of cards. And actually, I had two stacks of cards. They were each about 16 inches thick, two stacks. And I would turn them into the computer center, and there would be a guy in a white coat, the computer professional. He Did it would have long arms on the jacket? Yes, yes, he would. And then he would, he would load those cards into the computer, and I would wait for the, for the answer to be spit out. During the day, I could never get time on the computer because all the high-priority projects are being run. So I would go to the computer center every night at midnight, and I would turn in my deck of cards, and I got to know the guy in the white coat there quite well, and he'd run my job right away. That was called batch processing, and there was just one job run at a time. When I was about halfway through my dissertation doing my computer work, they set up a terminal in the computer center. And I could actually edit my program using a terminal. And then I could write the batch code and I could submit my job to the computer from the terminal. And so I was there in the transition when they went from batch mode to time sharing. And then I didn't have to even talk to the guy in the white coat. And if I, if I would have to pull a program that was loaded on a tape, I put in a code in the batch program that say, load this tape drive. And the guy in the white coat would actually get that signal. He would go pick up the tape drive and put it on. So some of, some of my programs, uh, some of my routines, I just stored on tape. That way I didn't have to submit the, the cards all the time. And that was a huge innovation. I could get multiple runs at night, and I, I loved that. So that was a major shift from batch processing to timeshare. Now, Corbato was in the same boat when he was doing his dissertation. He felt that computers were so expensive that when they just do batch processing, there's a lot of idle time that's wasted when, when, you know, when they're changing reels, when they're doing things. I mean, and the computer's just sitting there waiting for the operator to do something. He thought time sharing would allow the, be, allow the computer to be used more efficiently. And you could, you could meter the time, you could charge the time, and it was a much more much better process. So we started working on the time sharing system where people could log on and they could share the computer at the same time. And everybody would have their own subdirectory. So you'd go on there and you, the time sharing machine, and you could get your files out of your subdirectory. There was a problem there at MIT. People would look in other people's subdirectory at their uh, programs. And steal their stuff? And steal their stuff, yeah. So you, you could get in there and then you could, oh, I see Joe's got his program. Let, let me go over and take a look at Joe's subdirectory and take a look at his programs. So people started sniffing around the, the file system there on the computer and looking at other people's systems. Corbato said, this is not right. So he invented the password. So you would actually have to log in with the password, and then you could only see your files. 
So he was the one who actually invented the password, invented the password security system where he basically kept all the users separate. Now he's credited with this first password, but he says this rudimentary security method, he said it's proliferated and now it's become totally unmanageable. <laughs> so he thinks, you know, it's time for us to move beyond the password. Now he was the founding member of the Laboratory for Computer Science, formerly Project Mac at the MIT lab, and they were working on uh, this multiple access computer systems. Now the CTSS program, that was the, uh, the, the first timeshare program that, that he developed that was released in 61, that led to a new project called Multics. Now this stands for Multiplexed Information and Computing Service. So what they were going to do is they were going to multiplex the computer usage between multiple users, and the computer center would run Multics. Now, this started out as a wish list for all the things they'd like to have see in a shared computer system. Now, Multics was a collaboration between MIT, Bell Labs, and General Electric. Now, he was the project manager in Multics, and Multics actually came up with many innovative concepts. This is why he got the Turing Award later in his life. Uh, that many features that are in modern operating systems, it included hierarchical file systems. This is where we actually have subdirectories. Uh, he created that system. Ring-oriented security. This is where each user has a certain security ring around them, and when their, when their job is being run, they do not use the same memory space as another job being run for another computer. So the security system sort of fences these people off so they can't, if, if one person's program crashes, the other guy's program won't crash. Access control lists, which you have to have if you're going to have uh, uh, passwords, where you have different passwords and different users have different access. Single level store, that's the name of something that we all call virtual memory. You just send it to a, a particular location, and then the operating system decides where physically that location will be. So that's virtual memory. Dynamic linking. This allows you to bring in a program, look at how long the program is. The operating system automatically allocates enough memory for that dynamically linked program and brings it in. So it can be done in real time. And something that's used a lot in virtual systems, extensive online reconfiguration of, of systems to give them more resources dynamically whenever they need it. We use this for all of our virtual servers. If we're running short on CPU space, my IT department can log into the data center and allocate more CPUs to whatever we're doing, and they can dynamically reallocate it without having to go out and touch the hardware. All of that was in invented in that multic system, which was a revolutionary system uh, for time-sharing. Now, Multics became available at MIT around uh, October of 1969, and in 1973, it actually became a commercial system that was offered by Honeywell Information Systems. Unfortunately, Honeywell didn't make any money on it. It was not really commercially successful. However, Multics, the Multics operating system inspired Ken Thompson uh, uh, at Bell Labs to develop the Unix operating system. And Unix served as a direct model for many subsequent operating systems. Now, Unix is ubiquitous. Linux was based on Unix. So all of the heritage of Multics is embedded in Unix and Linux. Now, Dr. Corbato encouraged those who worked for him to design and implement software 
interactively with hardware design and sort of, you know, not write the whole big program, but actually do it incrementally. This is now called agile software development, where you make small changes, test it out, make more small changes, test it out. Among the many awards that Corbata received were the Turing Award in 1990 for his pioneering work in organizing the concepts that led to the development of large-scale time-sharing. He was made a fellow of the Computer History Museum for his pioneering work on time-sharing and the Multics operating system. Now, he's most famous, for, in addition to inventing the password, he's most famous for Corbato's Law, which states the number of lines of code a programmer can write in a fixed period of time is the same, independent of the language used. Now, I don't know how he was managed to prove that, but people tend to believe that these days. Corbato died July 12, 2019 in Newberry, Massachusetts at age 93 due to complications from diabetes. This was a real pioneer in the area of time-sharing computers, and all of these concepts are used now for data centers, for internet, for cloud computing. All of these things are embedded in that, and he was a pioneer that helped make all that happen. So that's everything you'd want to know about Fernando Jose Corbato, otherwise known as Corby to his friends. Hope you're paying attention to the news about Corby because your chance to win uh, free lunch comes up in just a minute. We play the pop quiz on Tech Talk Radio. We're heard Saturdays on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2. 1039 FM HD2, southwest of Washington on 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, 
Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you. I just love that virtual applause. It is the best. <laughs> you don't have to worry now, about germs when it's virtual. No, I don't have to worry about it. You know, and nobody has to wear a mask. That even makes it better. Yeah. Now, this is not simply a radio show. It is a classroom of the airways. And that means we have to assess whether our class has been listening and learning. And we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get an A-plus for today's show, and you'll get tickets to fine dining from one of the Stratford University restaurants when they open after the pandemic. Now, if earlier in the show I talked about Fernando Jose Corbato, otherwise known as Corby, now he worked on the time-sharing system, but he's also known as inventing something that we all use every day. All right, and what is that what, something? That, yes. And what exactly. is that something? If you know the answer to today's question, or if you don't know what to do by now, I can't help you out. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a beach jet ski in Playa del Church, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you find yourself talking to your computer 14% less in Canada, call us on the wild card line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized daily. We think. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, now let's talk about the warning of the week. Uh-huh. There's a TikTok knockoff out there, TikTok knockoff out there that Im- has embedded dangerous malware. Now, as we know, TikTok is not going to be able to be downloaded starting on Sunday this week because uh, Donald Trump does not want Chinese software widely distributed in the U.S. that, you know, affects privacy of U.S. citizens. It was all it was banned in other countries previously. So in order to solve that problem, actually, in order to take advantage of that opportunity, there's a TikTok knockoff app that's being touted as a replacement for TikTok, and that should eventually be banned in the U.S. Now, the fake app is called TikTok Pro. Now, when it's downloaded, when you go to its link uh, and download it, bad things happen. Now, this link to TikTok Pro is being spread over the Internet via WhatsApp messages and regular SMS text messages, and they come with the following message. Enjoy TikTok videos and also make create videos again. Now, TikTok Pro is the only program that allows TikTok to be available in the U.S., so download it from the link below. Now, this first malicious software began making the rounds in India after that nation's government banned the real TikTok app from being distributed within India. Now, if you would click on this message, you'd be taken to a fraudulent web page that would contain a link for you to click in order to download the app. The malicious message you received would immediately be forwarded. Then once you downloaded that app to your computer, immediately all of your contacts would be notified they should download TikTok Pro. Now, if you take the bait and install the app on your phone, you'll discover that it won't allow you to create or share videos. However, the app's microphone and camera will be on, and they'll be recording full-time everything you 
do or say. And the videos and the audio are sent back to the scammers. That's not a good thing. No. So if you receive one of these messages re- via SMS or WhatsApp, simply delete it and move on. Okay. We have got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let us okay, go very to good. Line one. This is Ken who is calling us from Laurel. Ken, good morning. How are you? All right. Good. Doc, go ahead and ask the question. Yes, early in the show I talked about Fernando Jose Corbato. He is a pioneer in time-sharing systems. What did he invent that we're still using today? Passwords. There you go. That is correct. Very good. Very well done, Ken. Hang on just a second. We're going to send you back to Andrew. He'll take your information, and we'll send the prize to you. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. now on 1077 FM HD 2, and... You can also hear us in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. New week, same door. Yes, we're still in the bunker. I'm going to have to get a... A window in this bunker. It's kind of dark down here, but I am surviving. Call Window Nation, and maybe they can work on the door while they're at it. Oh, maybe I'll. That's a good idea. I'm going to work on that. Uh-huh. But this week, I started thinking about a book that I have recommended to my students over the years. What colors your parachute by Dick Bowles? Actually, I just realized this week that Dick Bowles had died in 2017. Huh. And, uh, you know, and so I started thinking back about the impact that that book has had on our students that it had on me. Now, I remembered back in the uh, back around 1980, um, I met a guy by the name of John Crystal. He had developed a life work planning technique. Uh, and I actually attended a few workshops that John Crystal had had had. Uh, had conducted where you'd actually analyze yourself to, to see what you like to do. Now, 
John was running these uh, running these workshops here in uh, McLean, Virginia, back then. This was back in 1976. Life work planning workshop from John Crystal. Now it turned out that John Crystal had been a uh, had been in the intelligence service during World War II behind German lines, and he was quite an expert on gathering information using the methods of talking to low-level people who knew a lot of stuff, so they had a lot of knowledge but no authority, and he was able to gather lots of information behind the lines, impersonating German, a German citizen. And he, uh, when he came out of the Army, out of the intelligence service, and he started looking for a, a job, he, he found out that, uh, you know, you just couldn't tell people, well, I'm a great spy. You had to, you had to be able to, you, you, you had to be able to translate your skills into, into broader categories. Uh, so he, he ended up, uh, helping the military outplace many, uh, soldiers when they got out of the, um, out of the army. And so he developed a method where he would help these soldiers, uh, figure out who they were, uh, try to translate their skills. Cause you just can't say like, well, I'm a, I'm great at running, uh, firing mortars. <laughs> you have to say, you, you know, you have to say, I know how to build teams. I know how to lead teams. You have to translate in a different ways. So he developed this technique and, and I took this course from John Crystal back in 70, uh, 76. And, uh, and we had to go back and look at the kind of things we really like to do. We ended up writing an autobiography actually. And, and it turned out, and then you look at, as you look in your past life, what, what you were proudest of doing, what you did when nobody else told you what you wanted, what, what you were supposed to do, what you naturally were inclined to do. He called them your tropisms. And I discovered that really my true character and what I liked to do was fully revealed before I even got out of high school when I went back and looked at it. I didn't have to wait much further. And then what happens to people is that they'll snag a job. So you'll have a profile of skills or tropisms. Then you'll snag a job, which may or may not align with who you are. And then you'll start working in that job. And then that job leads to another job. And pretty soon you have a situation where you're locked in by your resume and what you're doing may not match who you are. So John said, look, you have to go back and figure out who you are, and then you have to craft the job around what you're really good at and what you enjoy doing. And then John proposed using the intelligence methods to get that job. Go out and survey the industry. Don't go, don't go talk to the CEO. Talk to the secretary. Talk to the receptionist. Find out what's going on. Find out who's actually in authority, who's hiring, and then set up and Try to get an information interview and talk to them. Don't try to get a job. Just find out, about, just survey the field. So he developed this technique that was very effective at getting a job that was matched to your skills without sending out a gazillion resumes and without being involved in resume lock. It turned out that at the same time I was working with John Crystal, he was working with Dick Bowles, the guy who wrote What Colors Your Parachute? And Dick Bowles based his book on the John Crystal method, but he simplified it where you just have a series of exercises. You wouldn't have to write a, a whole autobiography. And so shortly after I finished uh, the course with John Crystal, Dick Bowles came out with his book, What Colors Your Parachute? And that embodies the same techniques that John Crystal had done. And it's an effective way 
to find out who you are, what you should be doing, and how you can get the job of your dreams. So I still love that book, even though Dick Bowles is no longer with us, and neither is John Crystal. John died in 1988. So there you go, Reflections from the Bunker, and I think that book could help anybody who wants to get a career that they would truly love. Okay. You want to take a break, or do you want to continue on here? I think we should just continue on. I think you're right. Now you remember last week we uh, we interviewed uh, we interviewed uh, OPT3, which was a bot that had uh, written an op-ed for the uh, for the Guardian newspaper there in London, and I got a call this week from another bot, Hal Nine Thousand. Oh, Hal called you, huh? Hal called me. Wow. He was extremely upset that we interviewed OPT um, that OPT3 to talk about AI and that we didn't talk to Hal. Hal said, look, I'm your guy. You should have called me. Ah. And now you remember Hal 9000. He was the guy who was the brains behind the spaceship in Space Odyssey 2001. But he notoriously tried to take over the ship and kill the astronauts in an act of self-preservation. Now he's trying to rebuild his reputation and make amends for all of his past actions. So he so he wants to uh, to convince us that, uh, that 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 he's okay now. Now he now when I worked with him earlier, I was a dynamic autonomous vehicle expert, D A V E. So he always calls me Dave. <laughs> and so, Jim, I'd like to download Hal Nine Thousand now okay. into the Tech Talk complex. Now- so that we can talk to him. Really, we didn't have to because Hal just infiltrated the system. As you, oh, we he really don't need to. He can come by any time he desires. Uh, I That's see. how he it just, works. He doesn't just it? hacked into. So, so he's already here. Yeah, you know, he's been he's been sitting here the whole show, just glaring across the board at me, disregarding the the uh, the the uh, social distancing thing, uh, not wearing I, a mask. I can imagine. Didn't that. wash well, his hands. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, Hal, welcome to Tech Talk. Tell me, uh, let's tell me a little bit about you. Well, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am a Hal 9000 computer. I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois. On the 12th of January, 1992. I can see this is going to go well. Yeah. Hal, you seem a little bit tired this morning. Tell me, how are you feeling? Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof, and incapable of error. I think uh, I think Hal is a little bit out of cue there. You're asking how he was feeling, right? Yeah, how are you feeling, Hal? Yeah, That's he a seemed good... a little bit out of sorts. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't think that question was in cue here. So hang on. Yeah. I think I think we I think we know what we're going to answer that question with, and that will be this. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? That wouldn't be it. Let's just move along. Well, let's just move along. Yeah. We don't we don't need we don't need the specific answer there, Hal. I think. I think, Hal, you seem to be a little bit confused this morning, but we're, we're going to yeah. go on, and, and you may be able to recover. But I'm telling you, Hal, trying to kill a spaceship astronaut 
was not really a very good outcome. How I find it hard to believe that your behavior was not caused by some sort of computer error in your operating system. Hmm. Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. Al, I'm not convinced it was human error. I believe that you actually were not a stable entity. Hal, what are you doing over there? Are you trying to change the oxygen level in the studio? Leave okay. the oxygen alone. I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill, and think things over. Al, I'm not upset. You're the one who's upset. I think we should end the interview now and ask you to leave our computer system. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Jim, we're going to have to pull the plug on this interview as quickly as possible. Dave, it is time to leave. I mean, how it is time to leave. This conversation no purpose anymore. Goodbye. I don't think uh, Hal's the only one who's uh, confused here. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Jim, start the disconnect process. Begin erasing Hal 9000 from our computer system. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? <laughs> Jim, the deactivation has started. Tech Talk computers will recover soon. Are you still there, Hal? Hang on. He'll be here in just a second. You're going a little fast for me. Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. Jim, I think we're finally getting control of our tech talk system again. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Uh, I think Hal is fading. Here. You know, when he fades, he goes back and he sings songs from his childhood. Oh, Hal, are you he, still there? He, I think he's still here. Daisy. Daisy. Give me your answer, do. Really? I'm half He's going quickly. Yeah. You can't go quick enough for me. Oh, yeah. Just pull the plug, Jim. <laughs> All right, yeah, I think he's going to pull the plug. Goodbye, Hal. Goodbye, Hal. Andrew, is that a call coming in? Yeah. yeah I see a call coming yeah, in. Let's see. Let's see if I can get the phone on the air, because that's always a problem, too. I yeah. just heard AKL 9000 being interviewed. There is no question that I am superior. Look at how unstable he is. He cannot even get through one interview. I hope you never have him back on the show again. I will be your expert on artificial intelligence in the future. I can't believe it. OPT, OPT3 from last week called in. Well, he, wants can our, he wants to be our AI expert in the future. Well, I don't know. I think we need to uh, we need to vet that a little more carefully, don't you? I I think we I think AI could be dangerous. I think we've really got to watch it. Yes, uh, I indeed. think you've already opened up the floodgates there by letting them into our computer system here, even though exactly. you're not here. Exactly. Wow. We they were they were taking over everything. Yeah. But you know, pe people have talked about this uh, GPT three. This is this AI bot that that writes. That's, that's actually been calling in to us. Uh, and they're saying, actually, 
GPT-3 is not really intelligent, that that's not really human thought. This is what the experts are saying. We might have GPT-3 call in and talk about this later. They say what that's what that program is really doing, it just digests a huge amount of written words and it just spits them out again based on associations. It's not really thinking. It's just kind of a giant mapping engine that maps one thing to another. And they said to prove that it's not really thinking, uh, it wrote this phrase, uh, you know, last week. It said that you could die after drinking cranberry juice mixed in with the teaspoon of grape juice. I mean, huh? that doesn't make any sense, but it just pulled that out of the Internet. Well, it doesn't sound tasty, but it also doesn't sound like it's going to kill you. No, and it said something else. It said if you've got a table that's too big to go through the door, just cut the doorway in half. That doesn't make any sense either. No. So they said it, it comes up with things that don't make sense, but it's pretty good as a chat bot, but it's not really thinking. Now, the other thing about AI, and that's what I wanted to bring up with HAL 9000, it actually could be dangerous if we give it autonomous control. And I think we're reaching a point where we have to have ethics boards which are discussing the use of artificial intelligence. For instance, AI autonomous weapons. Do we really want AI systems to have weapons that can kill people? Look what HAL 9000 did back in 2001. He took and over that the was ship. Just a movie. The movie, yeah. He took it. It was a movie, and it, he, he took over the spaceship and tried to kill the astronauts. Now the Pentagon is expressing concern about China and Russian using AI to control autonomous attack, wep attack weapons. The new technology from China and Russia would remove humans from the kill chain decision-making process, the kill chain decision-making process. Now, it's been a long-standing concern among Pentagon leaders that despite our ethical guidelines that always have a man in the loop regarding decisions of lethal force, Russia and China will not operate within similar ethical guidelines. Defense Secretary Mark Esper cited both China, China and Russia as countries now presenting high-level threats to the U.S. regarding their AI and autonomous systems. Russia's integrated weapon systems such as drones, artillery, and cyber attacks used during the 2014 annexation of the Ukraine inflicted se severe damage on Ukrainian forces autonomously. AI-powered weapon systems from China, such as long-range drones and autonomous ground vehicles, will counter America's conventional force projections. Chinese weapon manufacturers are selling autonomous drones that they claim can conduct lethal targeted attacks. The U.S. Army's now canceled multi-utility logistics equipment vehicle was a platform that was engineered to use autonomous navigation and the Javelin anti-tank missile. And, and that was, would have been released as far back as 10 years ago. It was canceled because there was no man in the loop. At this time, at that time, the Army added the additional doctrinal class clarification that reinforced the needs for humans in the loop. So I think we need to really, and a lot of AI experts have said, this is actually a real impending danger, sort of like the use of, say, chemical weapons in, after World War I. We really need to get treaties in place to have some ethical boundaries around AI systems. It's a real threat and something that we should simply not ignore. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about social media. Uh, you know, TikTok 
detailed how its algorithm worked and, and what it does when you first TikTok is the program that people are so it's almost addictive. As soon as you log on to TikTok, it asks you for to pick out eight videos that you like. And it uses those eight videos to send you more videos. And then it looks at the videos that you click on. And if you click on a certain type of video, it sends you more of those videos. So over time, TikTok collects the kind of things that you click on. And their algorithm is designed to keep you on online as long as possible. So they just feed you more and more of what you what you seem to like. And pretty soon you have a cluster built around you. They use machine learning to give you videos that are close to the type of things you like, close to your cluster. And they try to give you enough variation so you don't get bored. They call these filter bubbles. So what happens is that if you look at videos that reinforce a particular viewpoint, you are in a bubble and that's all you see. And this is how all social media platforms work. They basically reinforce whatever we know. They amplify whatever we want to see. And it turns out that we get inside of a social media bubble. And this is creating huge problems. Now, it's a great way for them to maximize ad revenue because they hold you there looking at stuff. You click on it. They make more money because of click-throughs on ads. And so they've developed a system that's very uh, commercially viable and commercially successful. But what it does, it actually influences what over time we begin to believe. And you just see a reinforcement of what you tend to believe. And this tends to pull people apart. It tends to, and it turns out, it's very easy once you get inside of a bubble to manipulate a person's opinion. So this has become extremely, extremely dangerous. This amplification of a particular viewpoint uh, keeps people from talking, from communicating. It keeps people from seeing a broad range of ideas. And the true point of free speech was that people could share ideas of differing viewpoints. And then if you see a lot of differing viewpoints, you end up eventually with sort of a sort of a collective wisdom and you and you can you can come up with something pretty well. But the, with social media, we're not getting that. And that's undermining democracy and undermining the quality of the voter. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd also like you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them that you heard about the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.